0: And I'm Lisa De Simone, And this is Taxes for the Masses. Today's
1: episode is on the third Norwegian Tax Accounting Symposium.
0: In May of 2022, approximately 40 researchers from eight different countries met in Bergen, Norway to discuss the latest in international tax research. Today's episode highlights the conference, focusing on two of the papers that were presented, one that is related to income shifting by U.S. multinationals, and one that is related to a recent policy change brought about by the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017. (music) Hello, Lisa, and hello, everybody. We are recording live from... Somewhere. Where are we? We're in Norway. But what part of Norway? Oslo. We've been over a lot. Hi hi. We've been to a lot of places in the last five days.
1: We have been all over well, not all over the country, but it feels like we've been all over the country.
0: I feel like we've been all over part of the country. Yes. Yes, the southern part. The southern isles. Something like that. Something like that.
1: We we landed in Bergen mm-hmm. several days ago. Uh-huh.
0: And since then, we went
1: from Bergen, uh, got on a train to Vos. Yes. Got on a bus to Gunwagen. Uh-huh. Got on the fjord.
0: Yes. Got Ca- on a kayak.
1: Kayak. And then on a boat. And then on a boat. And the boat took us to Flam. Mm-hmm. We got on a train from Flam to Myrdval. Yes. We got on another train from Myrdval to Oslo. Yes. And,
0: and here we are. And here we are. And Lisa, tell all of our listeners why. What brought us to this Really, really quite beautiful country of Norway. The third Norwegian Tax
1: Accounting Symposium was held in Bergen just a few days ago. And that is a tax conference of international researchers put on by the Norwegian School of Economics or NHH. Yes. In conjunction with the Norwegian Center for Taxation.
0: And we were so honored to be invited to present research. Very honored. So we have to thank Max and the rest of the Symposium Selection Committee for inviting us here There were about 40 researchers total from eight different countries. It was really a truly fantastic conference. Uh, And we had some fun, too. Got to see
1: and meet a bunch of great researchers and found out that our podcast has made it to Switzerland thanks to Arthur Stenzel. We've gone global. Uh, And we appreciate Nathan Goldman for encouraging this Scandinavian edition of
0: Taxes for the Masses. Thank you, Nathan. And more importantly than the great research, at least from my perspective, was um I was introduced for the first time to the concept of the European hotel breakfast. Which was amazing. Like, out of this world's incredible. We stayed at the Hotel Nurgh. Sure. Wait, are you questioning that I know how to pro- properly pronounce that word? Okay. I have seen Frozen no fewer than 20 times. <laughs> okay. Uh We're going to go with Nurgh. And... uh it was in the fjords it was really it, was, it had just been renovated apparently yeah, it was beautiful by a famous norwegian architect whose name we do not know nor could we pronounce it if we knew if it. we did so it doesn't matter there's probably a j in there somewhere if i know anything <laughs> at least three um but it was yeah it was very modern great hotel and the spread at breakfast was a thing of my dreams it was incredible If you are caught up on our podcast listeners, you will know that I am a product of the Florida public school system, which means I don't know anything about math or literacy or history. (laughs) And so I learned on this trip that May 8th is Norwegian Liberation Day. Indeed. What we thought we'd do today is focus on two papers that were
1: presented at the conference, not by us. No. um, But that are very policy relevant. So things that we think could potentially influence U.S. tax policy and
0: tax policies elsewhere uh, in a positive way. Absolutely. So the first paper that we're going to discuss is something we've alluded to on a previous episode of the podcast. It's by Jennifer Bluen out of Wharton and Leslie Robinson out of Dartmouth bringing their hardcore accounting skills to a discussion that's been pretty much dominated by economists to this point Mm -hmm. and um, talking about the importance of precisely measuring things.
1: Which is important and something that as accountants, we really care about. It's our bread and butter. It is. The second paper examines a particular provision of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that was intended to reduce the amount of debt that companies take on um, because it was perceived, it is perceived, that too much debt can be a threat to our economy as a whole. Um, And so basically it caps the amount of tax benefits that, corporation can
0: get from debt. And so it examines whether corporations responded by reducing their debt. And that paper is by Michelle Hanlon at MIT and Shane Heitzman at USC. Shall we do it? Let's do it.
1: mm paper- we're going to talk about today it talks about a big measurement issue in an important area right now. So a lot of governments and the media and really anybody these days is talking about whether corporations pay their fair share. I know my eight-year-old is really concerned about this. <laughs> I'm sure she is. She is. And one reason that corporations, particularly multinational corporations, often the big U.S. multinationals kind of get picked on is because they have a lot of flexibility in where they are able to report their profits for tax purposes around the world.
0: Absolutely. So companies like Apple, Facebook, Google, you hear them talked about in the news for their nefarious, malicious, terrible income shifting where they allegedly shift income out of the U.S. to countries where they don't really have a lot of economic activity. So paper profits, you might say. And those countries that they shift them to also happen
1: to have much lower tax rates. And so the company gets to save a whole bunch of taxes. Now, one data set that researchers have used to examine this profit-shifting activity of multinationals comes from the Bureau of Economic Analysis. And there happens to be a measurement issue inherent in that data set that these two accountants recognized and are trying to point out to everybody who
0: is using that data set. So backing up for a second, if you or I or Senator Warren or Senator Sanders wants to know where Apple reported all of its income, where Apple earned all of its income, it's really challenging for them to do that because in the United States, we have companies file what are called consolidated financial statements. So all that we see is one total income number for Apple and all of its affiliates around the world. What that means is that it's really challenging for researchers and policymakers to understand where Apple actually reported its income. What's interesting about the Bureau of Economic Analysis is they
1: get these companies to answer a survey with information about their operations around the world, at least of their subsidiaries or affiliated firms of a particular size.
0: So researchers for many years have used these data from the BEA to try to estimate the amount of income shifting. So Lisa, can you help our listeners understand if Apple is reporting what its Irish subsidiary makes, why do we still have to estimate income shifting? Why can't we just take that number that Apple reports at face value? Well, because we know that number possibly,
1: probably reflects some amount of income that was shifted into Ireland that wasn't earned there economically. Problem is, we don't know what that
0: true amount
1: of economic income was because all we can observe is the number that includes that
0: shifted amount. Right. So kind of a fundamental rule of tax policy. We want to tax income where the income is quote earned. It's hard for us to know where income is earned. We know have some idea of where companies have their assets and their employees. Um, But even then, it's difficult to know how much profit they should be reporting in any one jurisdiction based off the level of activity that they report there. Exactly. And part of the problem with the numbers coming out of the BEA is that
1: even the numbers that are reported as profits within a particular country or within a particular part of a multinational group, those numbers are somewhat misstated.
0: What Jennifer and Leslie picked up on is something that is one of the more complex parts of accounting. For sure. And it's how the BEA requires corporations to account for investments that they have in other entities. Which we refer to as the equity method of accounting. So let's keep it simple and say, I own 10% of Blake Corporation and Blake Corporation makes $1,000 during the year. Blake Corporation is going to record that $1,000 of profit. And then I am going to record 10% of that amount or $100. And I'm going to do that regardless of whether I got any cash from Blake Corporation during the year. So there's two problems
1: with that when it shows up in the BEA data. Okay. First of all, we're going to see $1,000 earned as income in Blake Corporation. Yep. And we're going to see $100 earned in B Corporation due to B's investment in Blake. Okay. What's wrong with that? Because there's only $1,000 dollars of income that was earned. Uh-huh. But if you add Blake's 1000 that we see and your 100 that we see, oh yes,
0: we're double counting.
1: of that income. Yes. Okay, that is a problem. The second problem is where we are looking for that income to be earned. We're trying to figure out where companies are shifting income to, and so the location of of that income is really important. Yes. So let's say Blake Corporation is back in the U.S. Okay. And B Corporation is here in Oslo. I like that. Okay. We're going to see $1,000 of income in the U.S. Mm -hmm. from Blake Corporation. Got it. And we're going to see $100 of income From B Corporation here in Oslo, despite the fact that you've done nothing at all to earn your keep during your time in Norway. I am
0: offended by that allegation.
1: But the point is, in this hypothetical example, you did not earn $100 in Norway. Blake did not earn $100 in Norway. At no point... Did any of the Stomberg multinational group earn $100 actually in Norway, but that's what we're going to see when we use the BA data.
0: That's right. All of the income was earned by Blake Corp in the U.S., but we are going to show $1,100 of income for this affiliated group, which is not true. And we're going to attribute $100 of that income to Norway, which is also not Not true. true. All right. So we've got some double counting. We've got some misattribution. Can we just kind of squint and say it's okay? So both issues are potentially a problem. The
1: authors of the paper say that knowing the magnitude of income shifting is really important in order to determine what we're supposed to do about it.
0: Okay. And I can, I can get behind that. It's kind of, if we're sticking with the Blake example. I need to know how bad her infraction was to know how mad I need to get about it. Sure. Right. I need to know the scope of the misbehavior to develop an appropriate level of policy response. Okay. And so when
1: the authors apply a correction that they recommend, so they're able to fix this double counting problem. Okay. When they apply that correction, they estimate the amount of profit shifting out of the US by US multinationals is only about a tenth of what some economists are estimating using the same data without that correction.
0: Okay, so that's not a double counting issue. That's a 10 times counting issue. Yes. That seems like a big deal. It does. All right. What's this what's the problem with misattribution? What's the problem with saying that stomach? company has $100 in Norway when it doesn't? Well, I think it potentially impacts
1: what policy fix we're looking to. Okay. If we think that companies are shifting all of their profits to really teeny tiny island havens like the Bermudas and Caymans of the world, I think that policy response potentially looks very different than if we think they're shifting all of their income to larger economies like Ireland and Switzerland.
0: That's a fair point because when we're shifting stuff to Bermuda and the Caymans where there's really probably not any economic activity, we might combat that in a very different way than, say, if companies are shifting things to Ireland where they do tend to have employees and facilities and research and development things of that nature. Right. I think it's easier potentially, as we've
1: seen in the individual tax evasion world, to put pressure on some of those smaller mm-hmm. countries than it might necessarily be to go to one of our, you know, significant trade partners and try to just pressure them into raising their tax rate like. We've tried that. The world has tried that on Ireland for, for many years, even following the global financial crisis. And we've gotten nowhere.
0: Yeah. You're not really going to pressure the Irish into doing anything they don't want to <laughs> do. <It's, laughs> I have some experience with that. Yeah. That's that's not going to happen. I think there are three takeaways from this paper. Hit me. Uh, number one, I figured I learned what a dot haven is. Yeah. It's a country that's tiny as a dot. Yeah. Didn't know that before. Looking on the map. All right. Love that. Number two, accountants are all about measuring stuff. That's what we do. And the skill and the competitive advantage that Jennifer and Leslie brought to this setting was their ability to understand how the BEA was measuring profit, identifying that there was mismeasurement in terms of not just the quantity, but in terms of the location. Yep. And number three, no data are perfect. They really aren't. We wish they were, but they are not. And I guess I'll amend it and say a 3A, 3B. I don't know. We all as researchers need to realize that no data are perfect. Yeah. And just be honest. Yeah. I
1: think transparency is key here, right? No data are perfect, but be forthcoming with the potential pitfalls of your data because they all have pitfalls.
0: Nobody's perfect. (laughs) The second paper by Hamlin and Heitzman is looking at a provision of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act passed back in 2017 related to the deductibility of interest expense. When Congress was crafting the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, in theory, allegedly, they were looking at some of these perverse effects that taxes had created in corporations' real decisions. Sure. And one of the places they looked was with respect to debt. So there's this classic kind of conundrum that we have in corporate
1: finance in, in the economy as a whole, which is that if a company finances its operations with equity, that's not deductible. But if a company finances its operations with debt, then the interest payments that it makes on those that debt is deductible, it gives it a tax deduction or
0: tax benefit. So the idea here is that when you're making those financing decisions, debt is tax preferred. It is. And what can happen as a result of that is that companies can take on too much debt. They can become over levered. So Congress says that they wanted to prevent that. They wanted to take away this tax incentive, this tax benefit associated with debt that can lead a company to be over levered. And therefore, if we have a whole bunch of companies in the economy that are taking on too much debt, We might actually get into a situation where we've got some systemic risk and we don't want that. So Congress thought that by limiting the tax benefit of debt, they could potentially dissuade some companies from taking on what might be too much debt just to get the tax benefit. So the particular limit that Congress put on interest
1: deductions was that any interest amounts above 30% of earnings before things like interest, taxes, and depreciation and amortization was not going to be deductible.
0: Right. Okay, but recognizing that some companies just can't raise equity, they don't have another way to finance their operations and they have to use debt, Congress decided to exempt small companies from this rule. So any company that has average gross receipts of about $25 million over the past couple of years can deduct all the interest they want. So we have some uh, early research right after the TCJA was passed suggesting that maybe it was effective and that when companies have a lot of debt and could potentially be subject to this limitation that they actually reduce the amount of leverage that they have. So some early evidence indicated that maybe this policy was effective. Right. Where Halen and Heisman come in is to point out that
1: that's typically going to be the case that any company that has pretty high amounts of interest expense uh, as a portion of profits, mm-hmm. they're in a position where they're probably going to be delevering pretty soon. Okay. And why is that? Okay. So having too much debt can be risky. Okay. And at some point, you know, the marginal benefit of debt, the marginal benefit of that extra dollar of interest expense just has less value
0: than the first few dollars. Okay, fair point. What Hanlon and Heitzman are interested in doing is understanding the incremental effect of this new interest limitation of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, taking into account the fact that these firms that have a lot of leverage were probably going to do something to slightly deleverage anyway, even if the law change hadn't gone into effect.
1: Right. Okay, so what do they find? So they do find an incremental effect of the TCJA. There's a, there is some delevering that seems to be occurring above and beyond the normal amount in any given year. That seems great. Right. It's consistent with what other studies have found. The problem is... Oh, now there's a problem. There's a big problem. Okay. It's much, much smaller than the effect size that has been estimated in these other
0: studies. It's small. And then there's a second problem, which is that they find these results among firms that are not really under distress and that are not really constrained when it comes from a debt perspective. So
1: not really the firms we were targeting in the first place.
0: So close, but so far. And the ugly. And once
1: again, it's sounding like you might be um, starting us off here. Does 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 Bleak B have
0: something good to say about Norway? I'm turning over a new leaf of positivity here in I, Norway. I might leave you here
1: so that you keep this leaf, this
0: positive leaf overturned. We can podcast remotely. We we do it all the time. Well the first good thing yes. was an in-person conference.
1: Oh for sure. It was so nice to see people again. Yes.
0: And this group of researchers was very engaged. Super engaged. Great discussions. And good conversation over dinner. Yes. All of that true. What I was going to say was the, the good was the breakfast buffet. (laughs) It was really good. Just wondering who's going to bring me my Pana chocolate every morning from now on. When we retire together, we will have a personal chef who will
1: set up the breakfast buffet for us. Love that. I'm going to also say that a highlight of the trip was kayaking on the fjords.
0: Yes, it was beautiful. It was memorable. Lots of waterfalls. So many waterfalls. Very peaceful. Peaceful, quiet. Yes. However. Here it comes. However. And yes, I can find something negative to say about kayaking on the North Sea, (laughs) fjords, remote. Experiencing beautiful, remote nature. It was beautiful. It was remote. People, it was 36 degrees and sleeting. It was very, very cold and wet and cold. And cold. And wet. And mostly cold and wet. Yes, it was. But it was was an uncomfortable
1: experience.
0: Not going to let that take away from it. It was a memorable experience. Memorable. I like that. Um, nothing bad to say about the conference at all. No, the conference remotely. fantastic. Fantastic. So we're just going to move on to the ugly. So the ugly here, we're really going to focus on aspects of these papers that we discussed, takeaways from these papers that we discussed. First of all, we'll kind of go backwards here, and we'll start with Hamlin and Heitzman. I think the takeaway, the ugly takeaway from that is that Congress struggles a little bit <laughs> to make effective tax policy.
1: Yeah.
0: Shane and Michelle's paper reminds me a lot of work that you and I just... Recently had accepted, high five, boom, with uh, Charlie McClure, where we were looking at the effectiveness of another provision of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Very similar setting. Congress went and said, you know what? We think that companies are paying their executives too much and we think they're doing it for tax benefits. So we're just going to strip away some of those tax benefits and watch the exec comp fall. It did not fall. It, it did not. Right. And as much as it pains us to say this, sometimes, sometimes, sometimes. Companies do things for reasons not not related to tax. Not related to tax. Yeah. There are good reasons to pay your executives a lot. There are bad reasons to pay your executives a lot. But there are some really good reasons. But there are some good reasons. And there are some good reasons to have debt. There
1: are. Another ugly uh, takeaway of the conference, I think, goes back to Bluen and Robinson and how we as accountants – Need to talk more to researchers
0: who aren't accountants and vice versa. Absolutely. We have lots of people in different disciplines researching similar things. Yes. And sometimes we find ourselves very siloed. Yes. And
1: if we talk to each other more, hopefully we wouldn't be going, you know, pretty far down a path of using data that has some pretty significant mismeasurement issues.
0: We've all got our strengths. And I think that there are some real opportunities to, let's quote Ted Lasso here and say to be curious and not judgmental. Let's be open to the opportunity to learn something from a researcher who does something a little bit differently than we do. But then don't be a goldfish and forget it. Absolutely. That's (laughs) not going to get us anywhere. Number three, letter C. I don't know where we are anymore. Thirdly, thrice thrice (laughs) Another ugly thing here is maybe, Maybe. as a crazy idea, Congress, Congress might want to start talking to people before they write the bad policy. Right. Yes. And that would help
1: encourage more research to inform policy. Right. If we actually thought we might be listened to before they went and did something, then maybe we'd get more policy relevant research.
0: Absolutely. I know there's a joke that we all write papers just for each other. That's actually not true. We, we write them because we want other people like politicians, like policymakers to to listen to them. Um, they don't. No, typically not. And so then we sometimes wind up with policy that maybe wasn't so great. Well, that's all we have time for today. I'm Lisa Simone. And I'm Bridget Stomberg. Be sure to join us for more tax nerdery on future episodes of Taxes for the Masses.